Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abismo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome, everyone, to the New Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS, Vipakul Society. My name is Yoshi Yonekawa from Mid-Atlantic Retina and Willside Hospital in Philadelphia. I'm joined today by three totally amazing retina specialists, uh, Pete Campbell from KCI Institute in Portland. Hi, Pete. Hey, Yoshi. Thanks for joining us. And we also have Karen Jeng Miller from University of Massachusetts. Hey, Karen. Hi, Yoshi. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Kriti Rao from Retina and Vitreous of Texas in Houston. Hey, Kriti. Hey, Yosh. All right, the four of us have a lot of a lot of stuff in common, but one thing that I'm very proud of is that we all take care of a lot of kids with retina issues. And so this is a two-part series of uh, new retina radio focused on pediatric retina, uh, but we also made sure to also include what to do when these kids become adults uh, and all retina doctors will be taking care of them and you'll see what I mean. So for today's episode, we're discussing a pair of important papers on retinopathy of prematurity, one about the new classification system and one about adult ROP. So let's get started with a quick summary of the first paper from Karen and uh, of note, Pete Campbell is a co-author of this very important paper, and we'll be sure to get some insights for him after on. Uh, Karen? Thanks, Yoshi. So Chang and authors um, did a revision of the International Classification of Retinopathy of Prematurity, and this is a third edition um, for that. And this was recently published in um, the 2021 October edition of Ophthalmology. So going back um, in history, this was really first published in 1984, and this classification of um, ROP helped facilitate the multicenter clinical treatment study, which showed that ROP could be treated um, successfully, thus helping mitigate a major cause of childhood blindness. And over the years, it's been expanded and re revisited, and the last one being in 2021. So what were some reasons for going back to this and revising it? Um, so the last one was in 2005, um, and some reasons cited was that the previous edition was too subjective. There have been new innovations in ophthalmic imaging um, we often use, you know, FAs and these red cams that have gotten just better and better. Um, and novel pharmacotherapy options were introduced, um, the main thing being anti-VEGF. Um, and so in this, there were uh, many do 34 doctors from 17 different countries. And um, basically the um, overall summary is what is the same and what is different? So the same thing, the things that are same include uh, the definitions of zone and staging are, are classic classifications, um, but there are quite a bit of different things in this new edition. So for example, um, there are some new definitions for metrics. So they introduced the um, term posterior zone two, which describes a region of two disc diameters that's peripheral to the zone one border. Um, and this indicates usually potentially more worrisome disease um, than ROP in just a peripheral zone two, for example. There's also the term of notch, uh, where it's uh, kind of an indentation of an ROP lesion of one to two clock hours along the horizontal meridian into our more posterior zone in the remainder of the retinopathy. So for example, if you have ROP in zone two in most places, um, but you have like a temporal notch that's going into zone one, 
they want it's recommended that you uh, term it as zone one secondary to notch, thereby distinguishing it from an eye that um, has the most disease present in zone one. So another comment was on plus disease, um, just recognizing that it's a continuous spectrum of vascular abnormality that you can get normal for, from normal to plus disease, including pre-plus, um, and that you assess these changes um, based on vessels within zone one, rather than only vessels within a narrow angle, uh, field of narrow angle photographs. Um, there's also talks about a subclassification of stage five disease, which is the worst stage in ROP, um, and classify it within three different subclassifications. Stage 5A, where the optic disc is visible. Stage 5B, where you can't see the optic disc anymore. Um, and stage 5C, which you have stage, it's stage 5B with anterior segment abnormalities. Um, another important uh, revision, I think, is uh, the comment about aggressive ROP. And so aggressive ROP is just rapid development of um, the pathologic and neovascularization and severe plus that you see in ROP, but you don't go through the normal stages. You kind of just go from like zero to 60. Um, and so the changed aggressive posterior ROP to being just aggressive ROP, recognizing that this can occur in um, places outside of just the posterior aspect of the retina. Um, and then the last one being documentation of regression and reactivation. And this is particularly important in the setting of anti-VEGF where you often can see, um, especially for reactivation um, disease that goes away, but then once the anti-VEGF leaves the eye and the effects are kind of lost, there can be reactivation of ROP. So it's important to follow these baby close, babies closely. So talking about regret, going back to regression, it talks about involution and resolution of disease, which can be complete or incomplete. And when you talk about reactivation, um, you can have its recurrence of acute phase features. Um, and so you, you, you say, uh, if it's, you say like reactivated, and then you say what stage, stage two. Um, so I think this is a really important paper um, and I would love to hear everyone's thoughts um, about what they present. Perfect, thank you, Karen, for that wonderful summary. Uh, I think it's one of my favorite papers to read. It's a classification system a paper, but it's far from dry. You know, it's it's really well written, amazing pictures, and it tells you like kind of like the story behind each of these things. So, Preeti, what were your initial reactions to this paper? Yeah, I agree with you. She has a great summary, Karen. Um, I I think this is a great top uh, a great summary and paper on a tough topic. I think arguably this is probably the toughest kind of updated ROP classification to be done because now we have telemedicine, we have anti-VEGF treatment, which has revolutionized the care of ROP, um, and then kind of this kind of gray zone about what happens after we treat, you know, with anti-VEGF or laser. I really commend the authors on creating a, a really balanced paper, um, being progressive in terms of incorporating the, the changes in, in ROP management from anti-VEGF and laser, but also being, um, you know, conservative in, in how they describe um, different, you know, aspects of ROP. So um, they did a really nice job with that. Great. Thank you, Preeti. Pete, we'll get back to this important paper you co-authored after the break, but for now, uh, can you bring us to the second paper on adult ROP? What happens when these babies become older teenagers and young adults? Sure. Thanks, Yoshi. So this is a really important topic, and I think all of us who take care of, uh, of older children and and adults with a history of prematurity recognize that um, this is perhaps an increasing problem as more and more so-called micropremies grow to adulthood. So this paper by Shu et al. Uh, is an international multi-center retrospective case series that looked at 
long-term complications of patients with a history of ROP treated or not. Uh, and they sort of looked at three specific groups of complications, that is retinal detachment, which could have been tractional or regmatogenous, vitreous hemorrhage without retinal break or detachment, and retinal break alone without uh, significant detachment of the retina. Uh, and I think that you know the, the big picture, the sort of 30,000 foot view of this of, of this paper is that you know these these complications do occur. Uh, and we all need to be aware of them, whether that's comprehensive ophthalmology practice or retina practice or pediatric retina practice. We don't know the denominator here, and there's a sort of obviously a selection bias for which, pa which patients get into a paper like this, but clearly um, there are a few take-home messages in, from my reading of it. One is that um, these patients who have these fairly severe vitreoretinal complications present at a relatively young age for a typical adult VR practice. The mean age was around 20. Um, and so these patients who are born prematurely, who often have persistent avascular retina, which is a term sort of coined in the, the new ICROP paper as well, um, they can develop fairly early uh, and severe vitreoretinal complications. The second is that uh, there's this subset of patients who have been treated for ROP. And we often think once you're treated for ROP and it regresses and you're a few months out, you're sort of out of the woods. But there was a subset of patients in this paper that had vitreous hemorrhage at a mean age, I believe, under 10, uh, which was a really important finding uh, that we often don't think about. And you often think, you often convey, convey to parents, you're out of the woods and your baby's going to do great and we'll monitor for, vis for visual development and myopia and, and strabismus. But, you know, long term, you're, you're going to do okay. And I think those are the two main take homes from this paper is that uh, fairly severe vitreoretinal complications do occur both in childhood and adulthood in patients with history prematurity and all ophthalmologists and frankly pediatricians should be aware of that finding. A great summary, Pete. Thank you. Um, Preeti, what were some of your initial kind of quick, quick reactions to this paper? Yeah, so I thought this is a great collective effort on a large international scale to describe the most common kind of late phenotypes that you would encounter in clinical practice. So it's very clinically relevant. Um, I think the value of this paper is what kind of Pete touched on is really that vitreous hemorrhage component, um, looking at the etiologies of the vitreous hemorrhage, how to manage it. Um, and it's very consistent with kind of prior studies. Um, you know, vitreous hemorrhage was typically related to previous ROP treatment, whereas retinal tears, detachments, weren't necessarily related to previous treatment, but, you know, kind of keeping in mind that, you know, the majority, they don't only 20% of their, you know, patient population actually had data on previous treatment um, and what they initially presented at. Um, and I really liked um, their time, their age cohort, um, knowing that vitreous hemorrhage end up uh, occurring in patients that are earlier or younger between 10 to 20 and your, your retinal tears uh, end up happening later. Great, let's take a quick break. We'll go into more in-depth discussions um, with some practical pearls from our experts right afterwards. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. Uh, let's get into some juicy discussions about these two papers. Uh, Pete, so first we're dying to know. So what happens behind the scenes in creating an ICROP update? ROP people tend to be pretty civilized, I think, for the most part, but you know, where people are just shouting each other, throwing things. How did you all decide on like, you know, what topics to update and how did you come to a consensus? Yeah, thanks, Yoshi. As you can imagine, um, while everyone is polite, it's still kind of like herding cats to get um, pediatric retina specialists. You know, the, our field is sort of an eminence-based, sometimes more than an evidence-based field. And 
um, getting people to agree on, on anything um, took some discussion, but it was largely cordial and polite. Um, and, and it was remarkable how the process happened in the end. There were a few sort of global themes that we had wanted to keep in, in, in the back of our mind. One was that um, we really wanted at this stage still the classification to be relevant to someone whose only tool is an indirect ophthalmoscope. Um, and that is wherever they are, they can up, they can utilize this classification at the bedside without any other advanced imaging, which may or may not be part of the rest of people's toolboxes. The second is that we really wanted to acknowledge, which wasn't really acknowledged in previous versions, that um, ROP phenotypes can vary um, in different economic settings and geographically around the world. And so we really wanted this to be a global uh, international classification that was relevant regardless of where you practiced uh, ROP. And lastly, you know, recognizing sort of that uh, very few areas of ophthalmology in particular, do we still diagnose um, the disease the same way that we did 50 to 75 years ago? Um, ROP is one of those spaces where we still use the indirect ophthalmoscope and draw pictures. Um, and as imaging has advanced, uh, we've learned a lot from it. And so we tried to walk the balance between bringing insights from what we've learned with advanced ophthalmic imaging without requiring it or making it necessary. And the last thing I'd say is um, we really acknowledge that this was a classification process, not a management process. So we uh, refrain from making management discussions, but recognizing that the most important parts of the classification update are those that are relevant for management uh, and, and recognize that some of the things such as the spectrum of plus disease have clear implications for management that need further question and discussion. Very cool. Uh, thank you, Pete, and all the committee members for working on this super important topic and paper. Uh, so Karen, uh, re after reading this paper, how will this new classification affect your clinical practice, do you think? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I really like this paper because I think it just continues to humble me about how complex the pathology is for ROP and how interesting it really is. And so maybe to summarize it, I would just think about one word like more conscientious. I feel like it brings to light, especially with our new treatments in the setting of, I guess I'm just going back to anti-VEGF, how um, you know, close monitoring is very important for these babies. Um, and the fact that you know, bringing to light that uh, aggressive ROP is not just in the posterior aspect, you wanna pay more attention to especially these very low birth weight or very early preemies um, and follow them maybe a little bit more closely than the guidelines uh, suggest for the level of ROP that they have. Um, and so, um, you know, also when they graduate from your ROP examinations, perhaps seeing them um, six months rather than just yearly. I agree, it's a very, uh, very nice educational piece also. So Preeti, you're gonna play bad guy here. Uh, what were some limitations of the paper? What more uh, would you wanna see or less of? And you know, you have Pete right here, so you can blame him right here and now. I mean, thanks, Yoshi. It's only my idols on this paper. So it's great to like a question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, I think they did a great job. Um, I think a couple things that I would have liked to see, um, and this is just, it's hard to kind of describe in like a consensus paper is um, sort of going that one step further, taking an account to imaging based criteria and transitioning to that as we are becoming more global and um, and that all a lot of our screenings are based on telemedicine um, or um, and it's and it's going to only continue to increase as 
Um, you know, there are less and less ophthalmologists, pediatric, as well as pediatric retina specialists available in rural areas. So I would like to kind of see more imaging brace criteria. I think the second thing is this, uh, this the idea of PAR, the peripheral avascular retina. Um, I think um, getting a little bit more nuance at, because now a lot of us are thinking, you know, how much of PAR is enough? Like, what's the size of it? Uh, you know, what's the timing? When do we need to get worried? Um, and then mainly timing of kind of reactivation and regression in the setting of, you know, anti-VEGF and laser. Like, when should we worry about this reactivation? When is it true reactivation in terms of timing? Okay, great. So, Pete, um, here's your crystal ball right here. I want you to look inside it and tell us what do you think ICROP4 might look like in the future? What direction are, is our field heading towards? Yeah, you know, I think Preeti hit, uh, hit one of the points, which is, you know, you can only um, limit classification to ophthalmoscopy for so long. Uh, and it's sort of analogous to, you know, pneumonia classifications relying on chest x-ray and, and auscultation. Uh, eventually, CT scans uh, may be more sensitive, more specific for different subtypes. And I think that as our field evolves and as imaging slowly catches up in pediatric retina, um, it's going to be inevitable that uh, imaging contributes to either at least a better understanding of the existing disease physiology, uh, and that might be, in addition to, to plus disease, that might be a, recognizing a spectrum of neovascularization that we call stage, um, that may bleed into our classification in the future. And the second point Preeti brought up, and this was not pre-planned, so I think it's a great point, uh, is, is recognizing as more and more telescreening is happening, um, uh, there may need to be a different nomenclature for uh, for what gets documented in a telescreening examination versus a in-person ophthalmoscopic examination. And we may need to change our mindset from is the purpose of every examination to do a full eye crop classification or is the purpose of screening examinations to rule in or rule out uh, incident type 1 ROP. Uh, and, and the nomenclature and what needs to be documented in each case may, may be different. And so I think there's a lot of questions and ongoing discussions as to as to where to go next. Awesome, thank you, Pete. So Karen, let's talk about the second paper, the retinal complications in patients with a history of uh, ROP. So older patients with RDs who have a history of either being, uh, being born uh, prematurely uh, with or without ROP, whether they're teenagers or older adults. And when you get these retinal detachments in such eyes, what do you think is the best approach? How do you fix these retinal detachments? These cases are very tough. That's a great question. I think there are multiple answers to that question. Um, but what I like to think of first is um, considering some pre-op considerations um, where um, sometimes these people come in and they haven't had treatment for ROP and they don't tell you that they're born premature because they don't think it, it, you know, it contributes to their eye exam. Um, so some things I like to look at for pre-op examination include if there's any bit of foveal hypoplasia, if there's slight straightening of the vessels, or if there's a very posterior break, I might ask them if they were born premature. Um, and then also ask them about the pre-op vision because it helps set the stage for what they should expect after surgery. Um, and in terms of fixing the retina itself, um, I definitely prefer the bootstraps and suspenders approach where um, I'm, I like to do a buckle vitrectomy for these people. Like you said, these detachments are very complex. They can be really tough. Um, and the buckle provides a nice extra piece of um, uh, uh, traction um, relief. 
Um, these people often, if they've had laser, they have they can have really thin peripheral retina where they're prone to like a lot of different micro breaks that you might not even catch during surgery. And so the buckle might allow you a little bit of time to laser in clinic if you see it as, as a post-op. And Preeti, what about vitreous hemorrhage? That's usually like a management dilemma too. Uh, do we need vitrectomy in all these patients who, you know, just uh, come in with spontaneous vitreous hemorrhage because of the history of ROP? Or do we watch initially? What's your approach? Yeah, I mean, the shoe paper definitely shows that, you know, those that had vitrectomy with vitreous hemorrhage had better visual acuity outcomes. Um, I think it really depends on what the etiology is of the vitreous hemorrhage. Um, and that's like really the key um, before you even, you know, before I even touch the eye. I'm more conservative. I'm usually, you know, you really have to kind of determine whether the vitreous hemorrhage is from traction related or if it's new, if it's reactivation or neovascularization induced, because those are treated very differently. One is treated, you know, with laser or cryo, um, or if you want, you know, anti-VEGF and the other is treated, you know, with um, either observation if the if they're just in, um, inducing a PVD or if there's constant traction, you need a vitrectomy. So you have to really look at the etiology first. For me, you know, um, so really the exam, B-scan and FA really help guide treatment. I typically, if there's no, you know, big tractional detachment, I usually kind of wait it out a little bit and see if it clears. Usually after, you know, a couple months, if it doesn't clear or progresses, then I'll go in and clear it out. But, you know, for me, less is more because these eyes are so fragile that you go in there and it's really hard to get the hyoid up. And once you do, you can create breaks. And last thing you do is want to create breaks in these eyes. Great points. Uh, Peter, I have a, a tough one for you. Uh, so most uh, of the patients previously treated in these adult ROP papers have undergone laser or even cryotherapy uh, for their acute phases of the ROP, but more and more babies are getting injections with anti-VEGF agents. And do you think that that will, in the future, change the type of complications we see? Do you think we'll see more or less or just different? Yes. <laughs> um, that's my short answer, Yoshi, to a very complex question. I think that um, we're already seeing different, right? So um, there's a few case reports of late reactivations in eyes that have been treated with anti-VEGF who then develop recurrent active neovascular disease way outside of the normal ROP screening window. And so I think that an open discussion where there's still equipoise is what to do in patients post-anti-VEGF who don't reactivate, but who have persistent avascular retina. And I, we're seeing sort of a paradigm shift towards just lasering these babies to prevent that rare complication. And presumably to reduce the risk of long-term persistent avascular retina. The second question is, is persistent avascular retina more common after anti-VEGF? And the short answer is we don't know, although it's made us ask the question how common persistent avascular retina is after spontaneous regression. And there are now several papers showing that it's more common than perhaps we realized, especially as more and more 25, 24, 23 weekers are living into adulthood. Um, as many as 30 to 50% of those kids will have significant persistent avascular retina, even without a history of ROP treatment. And so I think it's raised a lot of questions in terms of how to manage that. Um, and I think it's something that we're all going to be dealing with probably increasingly in the near future. All right. Fantastic discussion, everyone. So as Pete mentioned, uh, ROP and adult ROP are things going to be, uh, we're all going to be seeing more of. So thank you, Pete, Karen, and Preeti uh, for your expert insights. And thanks to everyone listening for tuning in to uh, New Retina Radio Journal Club with PBS. 
And please stay tuned for part two of the pediatric retina series. And we'll get back with this uh, excellent crew and we'll be focusing on GRTs and Stickler syndrome. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. So see you next time on New Retina Radio. Thank you.